0: Jesus had just finished talking about John and about wisdom being justified of her children. That turned out to be a pretty deep teaching last week and uh, and fairly detailed. I think there was a lot of good stuff in there, if I remember correctly. I enjoyed it. Hopefully everyone else got a blessing out of it. But then he moves right after that, right after talking about wisdom being justified of or justified by her children he begins a new paragraph in verse 20. So this is Matthew chapter 11, verse 20 is where we're going to start. And he says, Then began he to upbraid the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. And Now, words of Christ begin in verse 21. He says, Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shalt be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained unto this day. But I say unto you, that it shall be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for thee." Now this is serious stuff. There's not a lot of comfort in these messages or in, in these verses. He said, right in verse 20 it even explains, He began to upbraid the cities wherein most of His mighty works were done. Why? Because they repented not. So there's some pretty deep messages or deep lessons to be extracted from these four verses. Tyre and Sidon. You're like, all right, well, where are those? Tyre is something you buy at Walmart for your car, or wherever it is that you go. Well, Tyre, T-Y-R-E, and Sidon were both cities in modern-day Lebanon that were actually part of the Promised Land region. I don't have a map and a chart. I don't really have that going on in Bible studies, but um, to point out exactly where they were. But they were, I think, they were in the one of the northern regions of the promised land region. That region of the Middle East that God had promised to Abraham and to his seed for a heritage. These were two cities that were technically in that region. They were supposed to be overrun and conquered by the Jews as they were going in and conquering the land. And it's important to understand that. There's always a cause and effect to the stuff that you read about in the Bible. When the Jews went into the promised land, they're at the beginning of the book of Joshua. It's the first book that comes right after the Torah. First book that comes right after the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Next book right after that is Joshua. And it chronicles uh, chronicles the entering into the promised land by the Jews after their 40 years wandering in the wilderness because of their faithlessness. And they went in, but as we said, I think in a recent message, The inhabitants of that land didn't just roll out a red carpet and then pack their bags and leave willingly. This was their home. But God was giving their home to the Jews because the indigenous peoples of those regions were not good people. They had been singled out for judgment, many of them for destruction Most of the cases, that destruction took place. And I know that a lot of people would find fault with that now. And and so the morality of it really isn't up for argument because it's it's the wheels that God set in motion. And so you can take that up with God. If you have a moral exception to God sending Jews in to wipe out whole nations and take their land, well, it happened anyway. So just, there's a point where you just have to leave it at that and, and not worry about the, the, the morality or the, immor- or the immorality of it. God is sovereign, and that's just not an argument that anybody's going to win because he gave that land to them. End of story, period. No negotiation, no, no contract, no nothing. That, it's their land, and it's been their land for ages. And if there's anybody still alive that could make any kind of a case for it being theirs... Well, you'll find most of them in Lebanon because I think that's where the remnants of the Canaanites are. I think if you dig into the genetic structure, the genetic code of the Lebanese, you find a lot of Canaanite genetics that are still, or Canaanite genes that are still alive among them. But they're not going to win that. They're not going to win that, even if it seems like they are. Ultimately, that land is Israel's and it will be forever and ever. Amen. But so the Jews went in. To claim the land and it was quite a bit of land and there were a lot of indigenous peoples that were already there. Maybe they were indigenous, maybe not, because they were always fighting wars with each other too. Just like the Native Americans of North America and South America. They were always fighting each other. They were not just peaceful Disney Pocahontas Indians, okay? They weren't. I'm not saying that they were all brutal savages, but by some standards they were. And not all of them were. A lot of the East Coast Native American tribes were actually um, quite refined by comparison. So they weren't all the same. But the people of the Promised Land, the people that dwelled in the Promised Land before the Jews came, were just the same way. They were all sinners. Just like every people on the face of the earth, no matter what country they're in. This actually is, is worth taking a couple minutes to spell out, okay? There are no noble savages, There are no noble savages. The whole human race, according to the Apostle Paul over in the book of Romans, the whole human race is condemned under sin. There's none righteous, no, not one. The Bible says that all all people have gone out of the way. All people are together become unprofitable. We're all wicked and we're all in need of a Savior. Now, now we've established that. So please, no weeping for the natives of the promised land. It's done. It's like 4,000 years past or however long it's been. It's, it's very old. It's very old news. Very spilled milk. Let's, let, let's go on. But the Jews were supposed to conquer those two cities as well because they were part of that territory. Tyre and Sidon were part of the territory that was given to them. But as you, if you go back and you read in the Old Testament, you read in Joshua and in Judges, you know, then you find that they didn't always do what they were supposed to do. Sometimes the children of Israel, on one or two occasions, they got fooled, okay? Not necessarily their fault. And on one or two occasions or so, they cut a deal. They cut a deal with the natives. Or maybe they got tired and they got discouraged and they didn't push as far as they were supposed to because the borders of that land were pretty clearly defined, the land that was supposed to be given to them, that ultimately it was given to them, okay? Well, Tyre and Sidon, they didn't really wipe those people out, and so... They kind of escaped that, but later on, they were overthrown, not by the Jews, but by Babylon, and later Assyria, and later on by Alexander the Great. And I think Tyre itself, as opposed to Sidon, Tyre itself, um, they pulled a fast one on Babylon, I think, was it Babylonians, conquerors? It might have been the Babylonians. They pulled a fast one on the Babylonians, and... They fled, they abandoned their city. It's just a little bit of history for you. They abandoned their city and migrated their entire city out to another place, out on a remote island. Okay. And when the conquerors got there, all they found was a military detachment guarding an empty city. And you'd think, oh, okay, well, that would be great because less war. No, they were mad about it. They were mad because they got fooled because nobody likes to get played. Well, anyway, it didn't work out even for that city that was out on the island. In the end, I think they were eventually overthrown as well. Why are we talking about all this? Because Jesus mentions them. Jesus mentions them and he also mentions Sodom. And Sodom doesn't really even need any elaboration. We know what Sodom was. Sodom was one of those cities of the plain, it was referred to. If you go back into Old Testament history and look at the life and the life and times, if you will, of Abraham and his nephew Lot, and and their whole family, and their herds, and their uh, their hired hands, and all of that. Well. Lot went into Sodom and the cities of the plain. There were cities spread out across this plain, that uh, and Lot eventually pitched his tent towards Sodom and eventually found himself living there, and there's a whole message in there. Trust me, there's a few of them, I'm pretty sure. Well, we know what Sodom was known for. Sodom was known for being destroyed with fire from heaven, but it wasn't just Sodom. It was Sodom and Gomorrah and all of the cities of the plain, except for, I think, that one small one, that Lot twisted God's arm on because he wanted to flee to it so he didn't die. I think God spared that city, maybe it got destroyed later on, I don't think the Bible says. But all the cities of that plain were destroyed in judgment because their wickedness was so excessive that it demanded judgment. You know, it's it's a weird way of thinking about it that people's deeds cry out for some kind of action against them. That's how bad things were in Sodom and Gomorrah in the cities of the plain. And it wasn't just homosexuality, although that was a sizable part of it. It wasn't just sexual immorality, but but it was so widespread It was so widespread that it was just an evidence of how far they had fallen. And there was nothing left to be done for those cities and for that whole culture except to be wiped out. And we can't really hold that against God because God is ultimately judge of the human race. So why does he bring them up? Because Sodom and Tyre and Sidon never had the gospel. They never had the Lord walking in their midst, telling them to repent because the kingdom of heaven was at hand. They never had a John the Baptist. Those cities had no one to bring a light of truth into their walls. And now that we've mentioned that, that, that's going to take a little bit of ironing out too, because that might sound like it's unjust. Well, that's not fair, one might think. Why would they be judged? Well, how is it right that they be judged if they never had a chance to embrace the truth? Well, because they were still evil. And it's something that you need to understand. We all, all people need to understand about the nature of evil is that ignorance doesn't get anybody off the hook. Because most sin is what you could call intrinsic sin. That means the act itself is inherently Wicked, you know what I mean? Like murder. You're going, to, you're going to tell me that murder is well. I was ignorant that murder was a sin. All right, really? Well, that doesn't get anybody off the hook in a court of law. Let's think, let's actually reach back a little bit further to um, to explain that. You know, go back to Abra- or not to Abraham. Go back to Adam and Eve and their first two recorded children were Cain and Abel. And you know what Cain and Abel did to or what Cain did to Abel? Cain murdered Abel. Cain rose up in anger and jealousy and bitterness and strife because that is the core condition of fallen human beings. Okay, You find that in all of them, all the way down to their core, unless the, by some extraordinary force of will they're able to excise that from their personalities. Well, Cain rose up and murdered Abel. And what happened then? God judged Cain. Well, why is that significant? the law of Moses was still thousands of years in the future. It hadn't even been written yet. There, had, there, was, there was as yet no written commandment to say, Thou shalt do no murder. Thou shalt not kill. Thou, you know, thou shalt not... Well, that's the two ways that it reads. Thou shalt not kill and thou shalt do no murder. It refers to the same commandment. hadn't been written anywhere yet. But Cain was still culpable, wasn't he? He was still held liable. God still judged him. And he was an outcast and a vagabond after that. And, and, uh, and, and then history goes on from there. His own account goes on from there. Well, these cities that he mentions Tyre and Sidon, Sodom, all the cities of the plain, they never had any prophets, they never had any messengers of God to go in and tell them, you're doing it wrong, and you need to repent. They never had that, and yet they were still judged. And so, if Tyre, Sidon, Sodom, and all these other groups were still judged righteously by the righteous wrath of God, then the cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida that had the Lord... Certainly their judgment will be far worse, won't it? Because they had an abundance of grace demonstrated within their borders, didn't they? The lesson here is that light came to Chorazin and Bethsaida and to Capernaum. He mentions Capernaum also. Light came to them in the person of Jesus Himself. He performed works that would have mightily convinced the earlier cities of Tyre and Sidon and Sodom, but because these Jewish cities were unmoved by such a lavish display of power and mercy and compassion from their own God, well, their judgment was ultimately going to be far worse. Because at least the other places could claim ignorance. At least they could say, hey, nobody came and told us. And us still are judged. But perhaps they're ultimate punishment is a little bit lesser. You know? You, you read different scraps of scripture here and there that allude to there being different severities of judgment because Jesus even mentions about a, a one group of people having a sorer judgment than another group of people. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that in, in a bit. Well, does, does that refer to, all, you know, the nine levels of hell that I read about in Dante's Inferno or something like that? Dante was a fiction writer, okay? levels of hell, we don't know anything about that because the Bible doesn't talk about that at all. All it mentions about hell is that it's a place of fire and it's a place of torment and that it is a temporary place because a place of ultimate destination for those that are in hell is far worse. And we do not that's not really part of the lesson today. But it is what it is. But the lessons here are that the more grace we receive the more accountable we are and doesn't that make sense doesn't that make sense if someone came by your life and you were struggling financially and you were barely getting by and they came by your life and granted lord jesus if it so pleases the lord you know it'd be nice if somebody came by your life and just dropped a million dollars cold right on you Tax-free, tithe-paid. You didn't even have to pay tithe on it because they'd already tithed on it for you. I mean, it's a million, clear. And they just did that. Boom! All your financial burdens instantly vaporized. Just like that. Well, if you were silly, childish, and irresponsible, you would go completely bonkers with that, go on a spending spree, and spend yourself right back into extraordinary amounts of debt or right into extraordinary amounts of debt. If you were a mature adult with some kind of responsible wiring in your mind, you would realize that with that huge set of resources, there comes a a, a huge set of responsibility that matches it, doesn't it? Blessings are wonderful, but they always come with responsibilities. Now this has been a recurring theme a lot over the last several weeks. And not necessarily by design. I haven't necessarily planned it. I have not planned it as a matter of fact. Let's just use very clear language there. Responsibility. With blessings comes responsibility. With salvation comes responsibility. With the baptism of the Holy Spirit comes responsibility. With anything that God blesses us with, there comes responsibility. Now, the immature and the childish person will then shy away from the blessings because they don't want the added responsibility. But that really is the wrong attitude to have. It really is the wrong attitude to have because with responsibility comes blessings. That's the wrong way to look at it with blessing comes responsibility because then they're like oh well I don't want the blessing then because I don't want the responsibility I just whatever I'll just deal with what I got and be happy with it that's not really the ideal uh, mindset to have that's not the right way not the best way to think that's suboptimal there's a Christian let me use a, a fancy psychological word okay but to view it rather as with responsibilities there also come blessings there's that, there's, that, uh, there's that old expression we used to hear in the Air Force, rank has its privileges. And it's not just in the Air Force, you hear it in lots of different areas. Rank has its privileges. With rank, but with rank also comes responsibility. So really, they go hand in hand. And neither of them are to be shied away from. They're not to be shied away from. Because the more responsibility you accept as a believer... The more responsibility... You know what? The more responsibility you accept as a believer, the more responsibility you accept as an adult, the more responsibility you accept as whatever it is that you are in life. Uh, A married person, a single person, a family person, or whatever it is, wherever your lot has taken you and you are right now. The more responsibility you are willing to shoulder, the more blessings are going to come with it. Yes, trials, sure, problems of course where there are human beings there are problems there's no getting away from that but there are blessings there are good things that come with it but we're living in an age now where many married couples shy away from having children having families many couples in general whether they even bother to get married or not a lot of times they they like oh we don't want to have kids because we just want to do our own thing okay well all right they have that freedom they do but that's really not the best kind of mentality to have. Now, I'm not taking the Catholic approach of, hey, be fruitful and multiply and have as many kids as you have. That's not always the wisest thing to do either. You know, you've got to be able to provide for those kids too. So, well, is contraception a sin? No, it's actually not. The Bible doesn't say a crying thing about it. There are a couple things that are close to that subject. Let's just iron that out right now in case there's any doubt in our minds. I don't want that plaguing anyone's conscience unnecessarily, okay? The Bible says a couple things that are approaching that subject, but in their context, they are not that subject. Look up and read about a guy named Onan, and then if you have a question about that, bring it to me and I'll clear it up. But responsibility. Okay, so you don't want to have kids, but don't you know that there are huge blessings that come with having kids? I'm not saying it's a commandment, okay? Do not misunderstand me. I'm not saying that. Some of you may already have enough. Okay? My wife and I, we only have our one, and that's fine. Um, But there are blessings that come with that. There are blessings that come with that. You never get, if you never have kids, you never know the triumph of watching them walk across a graduation stage. You have no idea what it feels like to watch one of them succeed in life or to something wonderful happens to them and you can celebrate with them. It's really awesome. That's something that if you don't experience that, you're really missing out on something. But that's not to, again, I've got to be careful with this because that doesn't mean that the unmarried believer is somehow a second-class believer, a million miles from it. Paul speaks very high of being unattached, because when you're unattached, you can be that much Holy, more holy devoted, not holy h o l y but holy w h o l l y you know what I mean more completely dedicated to God and your life for him because you 're much less distracted, you have fewer things making demands for your time, so whatever your station in life, married, single, somewhere in between, so well what 's in between i don 't know if you want to complicate it with the different statuses of Uh, Married, single, uh, widowed, divorced—you know, whatever whatever bucket you fall into in the U.S. Census, let's just put it that way. Whatever your place, you're a first-class citizen in the Kingdom of God. Don't let anybody make you feel like you're anything less than that. It's important to remember. It's very important to remember. What if I'm married and my spouse is an unbeliever? Same thing. You are a first-class citizen. In the kingdom of God. Remember that when the devil tells you otherwise. Because he's always the first one to do it. It's usually not another person who comes around and tells you it's the devil. Let's get back to what we're talking about. Light came to these cities. and Bethsaida, and Capernaum. Jesus himself. Light never came to Tyre and Sidon and Sodom. Okay? And so because these guys had light. And these guys did not. And these guys rejected the light their judgment was going to be far worse their judgment was going to be far worse because it is a serious thing to hear the gospel and then to reject it better to have never heard it I'm not saying that that gets anybody off the hook I'm just saying that better to have never even had the chance let's move on and there's a deeper lesson with this too that the more that a nation is blessed by god The more accountable and guilty its people are should they ever forget him and turn their backs on him. Let that sink in. Let that sink in. And then that even boils down further to the individual level because it always comes back down to the individual, doesn't it? What's a society made out of? Individual people. Exactly. A society, a community, all the way down to the street that you live on and the neighbors that you have. Your community, all the way up through your city, your country, all of it. It's always made up of individuals. And the individual, as they are saying in some circles right now, the individual is the smallest minority that is the smallest minority group right there, is the individual human being. And so when you have enough individuals that are living a certain way, then the whole culture is living that way, isn't it? So when you have enough individuals in a culture that have heard the gospel and accepted it, it affects the whole culture. And you have enough that reject it. Well, there's a verse I don't remember quite where, and I didn't put it in my lesson tonight, but there's a verse back in the Old Testament, I want to say it's in the Proverbs, that and I have to paraphrase it because I don't remember the precise wording, but every nation that forgets God will be turned into hell. But the language, again, the the meaning in that is tied up in the language. It's not every nation that never knew God. It's every nation that forgets God. What, What path do you think we're on right now as a country? Oh, America. The judgment that we are heaping up to ourselves as a nation... When was Roe versus Wade passed? Was that 73? 73ish? It's been like 40, 45 years since Roe versus Wade. What's the body count that's a result of that? I mean, it's absolutely it's absolutely to the stars. It's it's huge. That's a slight hyperbole, but I mean it's it, it's a it's a monstrous number. That blood is on our country's hands as a country. And not just that, many, many other things besides. And other things that our country has been putting into place and and pushing that's wrong and trying to push God out of absolutely every single public sphere that it possibly can. But there are many, I'm not trying to paint too dark a picture here, there are many that have not bowed the knee to that, have we? There are a lot of us. Don't be discouraged by that. All you're ever going to hear is the bad news in the media. That's just a known thing. So you have to learn how to find other legitimate news sources that are going to bring up some good news and remind you that it's not all going down in flames, at least not yet. But the more that a country is blessed by God, the more accountable they are to God. And God has blessed this country since day one, absolutely since day one. One of the very few revolutions that ever occurred in human history that wasn't Tearing down something good and replacing it with something bad. In our case, and it was a rare case, okay, because most revolutions take something that's already not that great and they turn it into something far worse. That's usually the case in communist revolutions and socialist revolutions, but in ours, God blessed it from the word go because he knew what was driving it. And he had a plan for this nation, and he still does. He still does. But if we succeed in turning our back on God completely. America will absolutely be turned into hell. It will be turned into a nightmare of totalitarianism and other uh, and other similar evils. And it's it is a very real possibility. There have been prosperous nations that were blessed by God Excuse me, that then made a bad choice in policy or turned their back on God and decided to do other things. And if you want, probably the most picture perfect, crystal clear cases in point, North Korea. Didn't even know that, did you? 120 years ago, 120, not quite 120, the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. North Korea, well, Korea, because it was all still one, it was one country at that time. Korea was a gospel lighthouse for the Middle East. It was an absolute gospel lighthouse. In fact, Pyongyang, I believe, Pyongyang in North Korea now, was known as the Jerusalem of the East. And there were more missionaries that went into that place and missionaries that came out of that place. And then I think any other country in that region. China might have run a, a close second on that. I, I might be a little bit off of that, so please don't hold me to that. But I know that Korea was a bastion of the gospel. And then World War II, no, it was before World War II, Japan occupied Korea and started to go downhill from there. Uh, but things, you know, they survived, but then after the Japanese occupation was driven out, Then their communist revolution happened and it began in the north. And it spread south. There's a reason why we fought a war over there was to stop it from taking the entire peninsula. And we succeeded in at least halting it. It was at the 38th parallel. But in the north that was then communist. And by the way, the man that ran that show, he had been raised in a Christian house. No kidding! Probably Presbyterian, possibly another denomination, but probably Presbyterian. The Presbyterians had a very strong presence in Korea in those days. He'd been raised in a Christian home for all the good that that did him and the choices that he made. That wasn't uh, his family's fault necessarily. I'd blame him. Everybody's accountable for their own decisions. But it turned that country into an absolute nightmare of oppression and it is to this day. The sheer number of people that are dying miserable and slow deaths in their political prisons over there and in their labor prisons over there is astronomical. And every single account of anyone that's gone over there has brought back uh, an almost uniform report. It's creepy. In In its totalitarian and tyrannical order, the way that that whole country is ordered, it's like a great big show. It's like you're living in a play, and you better play your part or they will snatch you off the street in a flat second and off to those prisons you go and you won't see another, you won't take another free breath in your life. It is that bad over there and worse. And yet somehow there are still believers that manage to survive in secret. It's awful over there. Why are we bringing that up? Because they're a nation that that ultimately turned its back on God. I'm not blaming the citizens. I'm blaming the government. It always begins with the leadership, doesn't it? And that's the history of cultures all the way from the beginning up to the present day. When you have righteous leadership, you tend to have a culture that leans more towards being right and doing right. And when you have uh, openly wicked and and compromised leadership, well then the country just follows right along after. It happened in Israel, it happens everywhere. He says, it's going to be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the cities for cities like Sodom and Gomorrah and all that, than for these cities where God actually had a presence and blessed them somehow. And coming back to the individual level, we make, it this, we make this applicable to us, not just as America, but as individual Americans. We've come too far to turn back, haven't we? As Christians, we've come too far. If you ever prayed one time for forgiveness of sins and for Christ to come into your heart, you have come too far to ever go back to the life that you used to live. Because even if you do go back to that life, there's no peace there. You already know too much. The blessed ignorance of the sleeping man who, who, while while his house is burning down around his ears, but he's not awake to it yet. He's just zeeing away, comfortable in his blissful ignorance, while the flames are approaching down the hall. Those days are done because you came to the saving knowledge of the truth. There's no going back and and having any peace of mind. There's no going back and ever being like it was before, and that is a wonderful thing. It was like that conqueror that came to the New World, that came to the Americas. They they, uh, They made landfall on the East Coast down towards Florida, I think. Maybe it was Virginia or what would be Virginia or what would be Florida. We made landfall and then they burned their ships behind them so that their men knew we're going to make it work here, period. There's no going back. And we need to have the same kind of an attitude. We know too much. We've come too far and God has blessed us far too much to ever have a wayward heart of you know what, I want to go back to the old life. You know, a person can go back to the old life. But again, there's never any peace. You have to sear your conscience with a hot iron. You absolutely have to sear it with a hot iron to escape from the conviction of the Holy Ghost and to escape from, from uh, the plaguing of your own conscience. There's just, it's just not an option. And so it's good to not even be mindful of Of that land from which we came, referring to spiritual Babylon, the old life, and so forth. He says, At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Lord of heaven, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. We'll pick it up next week, verse 25 through verse 30, because there's about two different things going on in here. His prayer to the Father and His declaration in that prayer that He's concealed these things that He's just been talking about. He's concealed them from the wise and the prudent, and He's revealed them unto, as He calls them, babes, children, those not especially learned. Okay, And there's a reason for that. It's really good. We'll talk about that next week. And then we're going to end with this teaching on come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden and that's good stuff too and so thank you for listening to come to the table bible studies from the new testament christian church of cheyenne included in these presentations are red letter studies on the life and teachings of our lord jesus christ historical studies on the old testament topical studies on biblical doctrines and practical studies on christian life if you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org. Backslash Cheyenne WY giving.